Hello and welcome to The Imad Show, where we get to sit down with entrepreneurs and creative spirits from around the world. You can find me on Instagram at Ahmad Mia, A-M-A-D-M-I-A-A-N, or at The Imad Show. This week, I got a chance to sit down with Jordan Nasser, a Palestinian-American artist living in New York. In this episode, Jordan talks about the importance of developing platforms and bodies of work that initiate deeper and more meaningful dialogues. He describes the evolution of his relationship with Palestine and Israel, and how his understanding of the two has helped him form his own life and career. So without further ado, let's get straight to Jordan. Uh, I was just going to say that, um, I mean, I can. I think the story will lead to this, but um, the end of the story is that I essentially use, um, I guess, like, my artwork as a way to have like conversation like political slash like life conversations um or a way to to start these conversations so like really the work is a way to for me to like talk about other things it's not um it's not a, it, don't have- it's a means to an end kind of so what you're trying well, to say? it's like it's 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 like a conversation starter. So essentially, like when I talk about my work, when I literally when I talk about my actual work, there is the formal element, like I'm talking yeah. about color and I'm talking about shape and I'm talking about the technique. I'm talking about embroidery um, and the history of that. But um, essentially, you can't talk about my work with out bringing up Palestine and yeah. then therefore the conversation goes to Palestine and it, you stop talking about like a piece I made and you talk about either how I made them or working yeah. with the women or going to Israel and Palestine or whatever and it just like so in a sense it's like the work is about the work is inspired is coming from Palestinian culture and is inspired by that but actually the work isn't even about like itself <laughs> it's like about having these conversations and i think um i think a lot about like activism and artwork and all that kind of stuff and and the the efficacy of that or not yeah. and i feel that um i think something that i've observed i feel i feel like i'm like getting way ahead of myself but anyway uh i feel like the something that I've observed is that by bringing up the conversation of Palestine um, through these like colorful, beautiful, uh, like meticulously made things, people are kind of disarmed because it's not like a slogan, like free Palestine. I agree, I agree. You're starting off on this foot of like, if a person is unsure of what that means, maybe they'll feel either out of their element or even if they're, if they're Jewish or if they're Israeli, they'll mistakenly feel like you're somehow attacking them for saying that or something like that. So um, I, I do feel like there's like a- A neutral ground. A, neutra- a neutrality, yeah, yeah. To starting with these like essentially abstract color <laughs> works that, um, as I said before, you can't really even start talking about without saying the word Palestine and that then gets that conversation going it's, or whatever. It's, Jordan, it's really interesting though, right? Because I mean, when you get into the, the intricacies of, like you said, the color, the material, the, the actual essence of the trees and all these different things, those conversations come up. But if you look at it just on face value, like you said, you can't really tell what it's about. It's a visually pleasing, right. a beautiful right. thing to kind of appreciate and, and to look at. 
And I like that, that, that kind of the, the argument, not the argument, but, but that the element of neutralizing before you can kind of go in and, and right. have this deeper kind of conversation. Right. So, right. But also I would say that there's something about, for me, like, I feel like by doing, by using Palestinian embroidery or satiris as a, as a medium, um, it is respecting Palestinian culture. It is, yeah. it is celebrating Palestinian culture. It is um, living Palestinian culture and, re and recognizing it as something that exists versus making work that says Palestine matters or Palestine, free Palestine, where that's not doing it. That's just saying it. And yeah. I feel like this is the opposite. Like I'm not saying it blatantly. I'm just like doing it. Like, I'm just like, this is valuable. This is beautiful. Like, and therefore is a pro-Palestinian. You, you know, this is, it's, it's very important. I, 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 there's so many things there. Like there's so many layers in what you've, what you've just said, because like the ability to have a conversation that's on a neutral ground and go from the idea that we want to work towards a discussion and a dialogue rather than going full gung-ho um, right. on, on, on free Palestine or, or Israel this or Palestine that, and, and that, that, that the narratives that continuously we keep on hearing about, I think this, this, what you're doing helps broaden that dialogue and really bring people in a way which opens them up to that conversation. Right. I mean, like, to the same extent, like, I mean, in terms of even just, like, attention or collectors and, like, that kind of stuff, yeah. it's, like, literally, my audience is Jewish, Israeli, or Arab. Like, that's, I mean, of course, there's craft people, and there's yeah. people who are neither that, of course, at this point are um, interested in my work, but the primary, like, like just the the kind of family around my work in terms of my galleries and in terms of um, like institutions that I've worked with and stuff like that. It's all it's almost always Arab <laughs> or Jewish, like because those are the concerned parties. But they're also so they're people who are maybe a little bit um, they have a little bit more background, obviously, in yeah. the issues. Um, but at the same time like they enjoy, I think, engaging with it because it's not, um, it's not aggressive. And so they feel it's like a safe <laughs> space to like think about these things. Um, and, and, but I also, I mean, I feel like if I were to tell you like the longer story of how I got here, which I feel like I will do, um, it does also come down to like, I feel like I'm constantly playing um, both sides in a sense yeah. where, and, and it, but see, the, the thing about that is that it, that's, that's a result of who I am. Like I'm essentially half Jewish and half Palestinian and am like married to an Israeli. And I go, and I grew up, you know, in, in a Palestinian community, essentially in New York. And like, do you know what I mean? It's like, there's just. You're a bridge. Uh, yeah. And so, but it's like, it's also like, it, it's, it's not intentional and in a sense it's just like i was born in a jewish neighborhood in a palestinian household and like etc you know so that like the the i think that the like the fluidity and even like even 
when I'm there. Like, you know, because Israelis can't really go travel to the West Bank or Palestine. And Palestinians obviously can't go to Israel without permission. And then there's a third, there's kind of a, <clears throat> there's a third category that includes Palestinians that were born in Israel. Okay. And, and it also includes foreigners, which I, as much as I'm Palestinian, I'm foreign enough that I get to be in the foreigners category. Got it. Yeah. And that means that I have the ability to go back and forth, to go to both places. And that is only true for, also for Palestinians born, let's say in Jerusalem or in, in Jaffa or in Haifa, where they also are allowed to just go back to the West Bank all the time and come back to Israel and whatever. So that literal, like being able to cross the borders back and forth um, is also something that I feel like emotionally or like metaphorically I like inhabit all the time as well where and it also comes up for me in conversations like oftentimes I feel like um you know people who are concerned with this tend to gravitate a little bit and so I have a lot of people around me who are um passionate about the Palestinian cause or are concerned about it because they themselves are like either American Jews or they're Israelis or whatever. And, um, but it's funny because I often feel more like a referee than, <laughs> than, uh, than someone who's like educating people. Like that's yeah. not, it's not that I'm educating. It's more like if I'm, it, what tends to happen is if I'm with a bunch of Israelis, I will often find myself, interjecting like well wait that's not really fair and kind of like refereeing the conversation when yeah. people refer to Palestine or when they claim something about Palestine I'll be the judge of like well that's not really true or like that's twisting it a little bit or like whatever just and I feel like it's very important for me to do that to speak up every time and just it's like you know just kind of course correct that um, but the but you know, unfortunately, or whatever, the same thing happens with Arabs and with Palestinians. Like the same. I mean, it's still it's still you know, the situation there is by no means like a conflict because yeah. conflict implies two equal parties, and that's just yeah. not what it is. Um, so I'm also very careful to always refer to it as like an occupation and so on and so forth. But it still happens. You know, Arabs and Palestinians who are just very passionate about it. Still, it's like you go too far. It's like you're not, that's not true anymore. And it's not fair because like, it's just like, it's not gonna help all anyone to speak in like grand terms and 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 really black and white terms and really, um, yeah, just like extreme stances. And I feel that that like fluid, bound, like, border crossing position requires that I also like do that too where it's like I can't just um enjoy both places for myself but like I, I feel like it's my responsibility to kind of like monitor fairness in the diet in the discourse which yeah. also means like just being as educated as I can about like the facts including like I recently this is funny but I recently for whatever reason felt like I was lacking on my like ancient history and not not because I want to get into the conversation of like yeah. we were here first no we were here first like that whole thing 
it's not about me. I don't, I'm not interested in like generating that as a talking point because whatever happened 4,000 years ago is like not really important. But at the same time, I felt like, well, that is an argument that people use. So I want to know what the facts are here. Educate so yourself. I can better like referee that, yeah. you know, because the common, you know, people, first of all, people think about the Bible as like, the oldest thing which is just obviously not true yeah um like people think like if it's in the bible then that's like before time existed you know what i mean yeah. like that's like the that's the impression but actually obviously the bible was written in like the year 700 like it's like lots of stuff happened before the bible and so you know in the bible it's, it's the israelites are in modern day Palestine. Yeah. And so that's where people are like, oh, they, they were there first since the Bible. Like they've been there since the Bible. It has to be true. Um, and, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that, um, like just to take this specific like argument as an example, um, that doesn't mean that Palestinians, unfortunately, that doesn't mean that literally Palestinians were there first and that's that because it's a whole thing where like, when the Israelites left Egypt, they were on their way to Canaan, but like couldn't go there because the Egyptians were still like in control of Canaan. And so they like were waiting outside, which is kind of like the wandering in the desert situation. And then, but at the same time, so then, so then there was like a war and Egypt withdrew from the area just to like modern day Egypt area. And so Canaan was like available. Um, not that it was uninhabited, but it was like not controlled by a government military. Okay. And so the Israelites then chose that moment to like start moving to Canaan. At the same time, a, like uh, an Aegean Sea people called the Philistines um, showed up as well. So they, and so the Philistines, which is obviously the Arabic word for Palestine, um, the Philistines and the Israelites arrived essentially at the same time Philistines settling along the coast, like modern day, like Gaza, Jaffa, yeah. like that area. And the Israelites were inland towards Jerusalem, whatever. And so technically they both kind of arrived at the same time and neither one is native, yeah. so to speak. However, the Israelites um, maintained separate communities because of Judaism. Like they, they, they only married other Jews and et cetera. Whereas the Philistines, mixed in with the Canaanites. So in a sense, the Canaanites are also the ancestors of modern day Palestinians. Yeah. And therefore one could argue that they actually were there first. But my point is, I don't feel like who is there first is an issue. It's more about for me disarming those arguments yeah, when arguments someone is hooked on that, like somehow it matters that the yeah. Israelites were there or the Philistines were there. And I just kind of want to, um, you know, be able to point to like historical facts and like not let it become these conceptual arguments that result in people feeling like entitled to something or um somehow AC I mean the, the the biggest thing with Palestine right now is like there's really very little that is worth talking about that isn't a distraction from like what is literally happening to people's lives like right now you know what I mean like it's almost offensive to discuss ancient history when like yeah. people don't have food and water and medicine the, the issues they were actually you know what i mean it's today. like it's like it's like why is that so important to you to feel right about that when like i'm talking about 
people needing medical like today service, you like know now. like right yeah. now yeah or like don't have water <laughs> you know um and so yeah but so, so i mean and this this is the thing about it i think that is also so overwhelming in a sense is that like it spans everything from like ancient history to like modern climate crisis covid crisis it has to do with like an active military occupation and active military like attacks against civilians in Palestine. It has to do with um, the whole topic of terrorism and like definitions of that and and Western, you know, a kind of Orientalist like Western gaze. And um, it just is such a huge, like all encompassing topic area <laughs> that it's like almost impossible. And I And I do feel oftentimes that it's important and also difficult to stay like, on to stay focused on what like actually matters and is not like an intellectual exercise do you know yeah. what i mean yeah I, um, there's one thing that i want to ask you from all of this how does i mean these are all very heavy topics and your position being in between these two conversations is is, is a very heavy place to be refereeing these two conversations where each are so passionate how how do you how do you feel man how do you kind well, of internalize and and like does this take a, a toll on you being put in this position every i mean time? it's not that it i wouldn't say i mean yeah i mean at times it's i've had certainly periods where you know, in retrospect, I recognize them as like periods of, I don't know, growth or like more difficult periods. And um, usually it has to do with like what I'm doing. So for example, I did an artist residency program in Jaffa, which is an Israeli like artist residency program, um, but is, lo is located in like Jaffa, like more Palestinian neighborhood and or the traditional like Palestinian city that was there um and that was I mean I feel like I have to give you a little bit more backstory in general Tell about, me. like how how I wound up here but essentially um my okay I, I'm literally gonna start with like my grandparents let's go um, let's go let's go this, this is okay, great yeah, yeah, yeah let's tell go. you this story so my like great great grandparents whatever on my on my father's side um my grandfather's ancestors were from gaza yeah and we were actually from our last name wasn't nasser nasar it was sayer um which is a like a big family in in gaza and there's also the same family in jerusalem but it's like a different branch um so we were from gaza but at a certain point, I believe it was my great-great-grandfather, but it could have even been his father, moved up to the north, um, which to an area that is now in Jordan. Okay. It's by, it's by Asalt. It's like a little town called uh, Ramamin. Okay. Um, so that's where my grandfather was born in modern-day Jordan and grew up there. And then on his way to America, he actually came on a boat to America from Haifa. So he inhabited like that kind of whole area, Region, like yeah. up to like Gaza, Northern, West Bank, Jordan, and the coast of modern day Israel. 
Um, and my grandmother's side was actually Syrian Lebanese, but at this time in like the early 1900s, especially like there weren't even the countries <laughs> that are there now. So I mean, in Ara- in, in, now in, in, in Arabic, you say Shami, which just means Semitic, but okay. it's just like it means Levantine. Um, and so, yes, there's a difference between like Lebanese, Syrian, Palestinian, Jordanian, but also there's like not totally that much difference. Um, anyway. So my grandparents met in New York and got married. They met, they were an arranged marriage. They got married. They like arranged in, in the Bronx or Yonkers (laughs) outside the city. Um, in the, there's a big Arab, there's like, you know, the hotspots for Arab communities in New York are like Brooklyn. Like it used to be like Atlantic Avenue area of Brooklyn, like a hundred years ago. Now it's more Bay Ridge. Um, and then Yonkers is like the other one. And then of course, like Northern New Jersey. So my family, originally we were in Brooklyn and then went to the to Yonkers and that's where my father was born and grew up. Um, my mother's parents are from Poland and my mom was is from New Jersey. She was born in New Jersey. Um, but her parents, her, it, her parents have a crazy story, but essentially they're Polish. Like, spoke Polish, everything, like very Polish. And they're Catholic. Okay. But um, but a few years ago, she passed away like over 10 years ago. But around that time, we, you know, you going through her papers, this kind of stuff. And I was reminded that her last name is Davidovich. Her her maiden name was Davidovich, which is like unequivocally a Jewish name in okay. Poland. Like there's it literally means like of David like it's it's like quintessentially (laughs) Jewish name cannot get more in terms of like my background essentially and I do I have like I've arrived at a place where I I kind of claim that like I wasn't raised in a Jewish family and I'm because I'm not as well but actually like I recognize that I have these Jewish roots and you know my my family on my mother's side you know, we had family in the Holocaust. My grandfather fled and was like hiding in farmhouses in, you know, like it was like he had a escaping the Holocaust story and stuff like that. And I'm not even sure, unfortunately, everyone from that generation has passed away. And so I can't, there's no one I can even ask like what happened. And all we have to go on is like anything my mom might remember from her parents. Yeah. But I I do think that, there's a little bit of this, what, what happens a lot with things like um, people who were affected by the Holocaust is some people talk about it, but some people never talk about it again. Yeah. And I think that Mike, I, I don't know. I, I, I have a feeling that there's a lot that we don't know about what happened to my family on the Polish side, because like, why would my, if my grandfather was, was like a normal Polish guy like why would he be fleeing and hiding and like whatever so like I'm like and I don't I'm not saying that I think he was Jewish too but like I don't know like the whole thing is there's a big mystery but the name is like pretty solid um growing up I essentially was the only friend the only kid that like wasn't Jewish or you know um and so the cultural Jewishness of New York especially was that was like the center of it is the Upper West Side you know um maybe the lower east side as well but the upper side is like a hot spot for that um but within our house at home everything was always palestine my father is you know 100 percent arab 
and um, it's interesting because a this this kind of phenomenon happened with him that is that happened with me as well, which is that he has four siblings. Or he has three siblings. He's he's there's four four kids that my grandparents had. Yeah, and other my uncles and aunt like like there's there they they have Arab culture, but it wasn't something that they like they never went I think like maybe they've been to the Middle East once in their lives whereas my dad more Americanized more right they're just like assimilated and you know they were essentially raised like that like my father was born in 1940 and to this day he doesn't speak Arabic because when he was a kid he was spoken to in Arabic until he started going to school and then once he was like five years old they were like you're American speak English that's it you know which was, I feel like, much more the, the way in, like, the 40s. <laughs> um, the mentality of people moving to America was, like, we're Assimilate and, yeah, we're yeah. yeah, of course. Whereas now it's all about, like, multicultural... Keeping everything. your roots and, and bringing that, that narrative back. It wasn't that back then. And, and I think that for, for the other... For my aunts and uncle For my uncles and aunts, um, it really worked. Like, you wouldn't really know they were Arab unless you were... Very much, um, and they have they have maybe a little tan skin, but nothing. We're not really dark in our family, so it's like you. They just seem like American. Like my cousins, like honestly, like you, you would think they were Italian American or something. Like they, yeah. you know what I mean. Like it's just there's not. Um, but my father, for whatever reason, sentimentally was just like, your maybe the stories he heard growing up. Maybe I don't know what it was, but he. Um, he became a doctor and starting in the 80s, he started going to Gaza and the West Bank um, as a doctor doing, he does psychiatry. And so he um, started being parts of like conferences and panels and whatever about post-traumatic stress disorder, et cetera, like helping people, helping doctors there help people there um, and has been involved with that ever since. And so um so, so my father, for whatever reason, made it a part of his life again, like being in Palestine, going back there. Um, and I'm the same as my brothers don't. It's not that they don't care. They just like don't live so close. Um, they both have been to the Middle East once. Okay. Actually, my big brother went twice. My big brother went to Jordan in, in 1981 and he went to Palestine in, in the 90s at some point with my father. My little brother and I first went with my parents in the year 2000, right before the Second Intifada. Like everyone knew the Second Intifada was about to happen um, because there was like a deadline for uh, something that like they weren't going to... People knew that the Intifada was going to happen mm-hmm. because there was an agreement that was like a deadline for signing an agreement that they knew they weren't going to sign and whatever. So my father knew that. And he was concerned with like, we didn't know what was going to happen and how things would change there. So he wanted us to have been there before that. Yeah. So he brought us in the year 2000, but that's the only time my little brother has ever been there. Whereas I now go there usually without coronavirus, uh, go there like three, four times a year. Quite frequently. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I've, you know, as a 10 year old, I, w- I wanted to learn, Arabic so I like had Arabic lessons to read and write and and you know because we we grew up like some of our family so basically some of our family is some of our New York Arab family is kind of pure Arab where they 
marry other Arabs from, like they'll even like meet people there and bring the wife back yeah. to New York and have, you know, and then that's like my, that's like my first cousins, like my father's first cousin. So, uh, but my, but my father and his siblings all married non-Arab Americans. Yeah. Um, and it's a huge difference. And it's, uh, so, but, 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 so we did grow up around, like from time to time, you know, every, every so often we would go to these families' houses in Yonkers or whatever, where we would be like, it's like being in the Middle East, you know? just visually and all the food and the like they have a lot of kids and they have you know it's just like the whole thing and so we were exposed to that and I did we did have a degree like my grandfather used to speak Arabic to, uh, you know what I mean so like I there was like some sort of knowledge of Arabic in my mind at some point but like I didn't actually speak it when I was little properly and so when I was like 10 years old I wanted to learn um and so I had an Arabic tutor and et cetera, whereas my brother is like, just not interested, you know? Um, I think my cousins, who are my first cousins, they're exactly like me, they're half, they're half Irish, half Arab, but we're half Polish. But um, it's like, I think their extent of their Arab culture is like, they make hummus sometimes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's about it. Like, they don't, they don't, oh, and they, and they, for whatever reason, they call like, they had kids and now they call, the kids call my uncle, they call him Jiddo, which okay. is like, yeah, so yeah, like okay. that is like the one thing, like Sitin Jiddo is like the one thing that carried over. Um, otherwise you wouldn't have no idea that, that, that uh, like that a lot of us were Arab. Were you um, able to pinpoint what it was? Cause you, you said the same thing was, was, was similar for your father. Um, and he was getting this relationship and starting to go back to Palestine. Would you be able to pinpoint what it was about you and your relationship with either your father or your own personality that kind of made you differentiate from your brothers and want to go back and, and have this connection? Uh, honestly, I have no idea. Like, I think, I don't know. Like, maybe it was all the stories he told us. But again, like, he told my brothers the same stories. I don't yeah. know. Like, I think it's just like a certain type of maybe it's like I, I i think some people are just more interested in their roots and their his, the ancestry and this kind of stuff i don't know i think I, I i don't know i i just know that um that was just i mean as i said maybe it was coming from my father but i remember even when i was little like having so much like Palestine stuff, like little flags and little things. You know what I mean? It's like we little were trinkets, like, kind I of. Just, remind, yeah. I was just like, I. But it was not even reminding me. It was just like I was raised to be like proud to be Palestinian. <laughs> you know what I mean? And for me, that stuck. And my brothers, I mean, my little brother especially, like, is the same in terms of that, but doesn't know any Arabic. Has never been. You know, he was even supposed to come. I had an exhibition in Tel Aviv last year. Yeah. And my parents and my parents came and my little brother was supposed to come. And he just didn't. He just like <laughs> something else came up and he just didn't. He's like not interested. He's just not interested, which yeah. is fine. It's just an interesting, like, why is that? Um, but anyway, so that is kind of like the that's like the the stage, right? For me, who I am. And then 
Um, from a young age, like from high school, I started in high school. I was the first time I took a foreign language. Well, in middle school, I did Latin, but then, so in high school, I started doing Italian and, um, that was the first time I had really learned a language like that was unrelated to me. Cause I, I also should say I had Polish lessons as well when I was little. So I was okay. equally interested in Arabic like, and Polish, yeah. yeah, I mean, we have much less Polish family. Uh, and so it was much less, we didn't grow up in any sort of community like that. Whereas in, with the Arab family, there was much more extended family right here. And we go to baptisms cause they're all Eastern Orthodox Christian. We're all okay. Christian Arab. Um, but uh, so yeah, so I, we were closer with the Arabic. And actually another hugely important thing for me personally was that my father's first cousin is a woman named Hannah. Okay. And she was born in Palestine in Jerusalem before the Nakba. And she was a little girl when the Nakba happened. And uh, her father and mother and she and some of her siblings fled from Jerusalem when they were founding Israel. Um, they fled from Jerusalem to Jordan. And then uh, that was in 1948. And then in, three years later in 1951, they came to America. Okay. and joined my father's family who was already there my grandfather came here in 1920 or 1921 so like pre-israel yeah. emigration um but so we do have that side of the family that is that emigrated to america because of the nakba and um she so she grew up with my father like here and at a certain point when I was about 10 years old, I think, um, one thing led to another. She lost her apartment, whatever happened, and she um, came to stay with us for a little while, which was something that my father, one thing that my father really emphasizes in terms of um, his Arab upbringing is like that the whole family lived in one house, like the great grandparents, the grandparents, the kids, their kids, like everyone. It, and that to him is like so meaningful and such an Arab thing in his mind. And so I think like my cousin Hannah coming to live with us, you know, she first came to stay with us, but ended up being there for like 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> and she lived in the living room and like we had a Murphy bed in there and every night she'd like put down yeah. the bed and it would be her bedroom. And then in the morning I put it away. But you know, for me, it also intersects with the fact that I was like a gay kid who was closeted and all this stuff. Um, so for whatever reason, I became like best friends with Hannah. And I, I literally would like sleep on the couch in the living room often with her in the room with her instead of in my own room with my brother. And like every night we would like, she would record the soap operas during the day. And then at night we would watch what? the vcs tape yeah. vhs tape of like <laughs> that day's soap operas and like we just were really close but she's very palestinian like she speaks arabic she cooks like the old freaking like like once she moved in our kitchen became an arab kitchen like suddenly there was all this <laughs> stuff with like all the jars full of things stewing in olive oil and like make her own ghee and make this and make that and just always cooking and cooking traditional stuff and teaching me how to cook everything. Um, and she also exposed me. Like, I think when I was really little, my father had like one cassette tape of Amr Diab. Um, 
And otherwise, like that was like my extent of Arabic knowledge okay. and music. And then once Hannah moved in, it was Feruz, it was Um Kulthum, it was- Oh, wow, so it's, you're, you're getting it like, yeah. So she, but so she exposed me to that when I was still very young. And so I, I now kind of consider her like, I have my mom and my dad, and then I have my Palestinian mom, which is <laughs> And because she would, you know, she just, just like the normal stuff, like she'd call me like, yeah, Zalameh. And like, you know, like she would feel it, it, yeah, she gave me that cultural uh, experience or whatever. Like, people and usually feel like go that. And, 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 and get this when they do immersion in other countries. Right. Getting this exactly. In your room. Yeah. And so, and that's, I think, something that's really, it's tricky because in a lot of ways, we're so American. And in America, we're essentially white. And like, it's just easy to just be like that here. Yeah. Like it's it's the status quo in a lot of ways. And I think that for whatever reason, you know, having the tangential family is one thing, but having Hana live with us changed a lot for me and gave me, like before it was too late, before it was too old, <laughs> she imbued that sense of like, this is my culture into me where I didn't, you know what I mean? So, so, and so that I think had a big impact. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, like my little brother lived there at the same time, but maybe it was because, as I said before, like, because I was gay, I think that I interacted differently with people because I wasn't obviously out of the closet yet or whatever. And so I think that I was, I think I gravitated towards women. I think that I, uh, kind of was a little shy socially. And so someone like my cousin at home was the perfect like best friend, you know what I mean? Like person to- That level of comfort, that level of personable right. nature, yeah. A, a motherly figure, it's not like a scary, you know, who knows. But um, so for whatever reason, maybe my like closeness with her also was part of the reason that I received so much of that culture, but like, you know, to this day, like I listen to so much. I'm like, I'm, I, I like Arabic music is like one of my main hobbies, <laughs> you know, uh, and so on. And, so, and of course, cooking. Like I only, I basically, I do, I can cook other things, but essentially, almost only cook Arab food, just because that's the that's. I would come home from high school and make a can of food for myself yeah. as like my snack, like, and because it's because Hana taught uh, taught me to do all that, and. Uh, and so, yeah, so, so that was an important time for me, but also um, at the same time, that was the first time, like those years was also the first time that I kind of learned that it's dangerous to talk about Palestine and Israel. Um, after my first, after my father brought us to Palestine that summer, I remember I came back and we, you know, we had a nice trip. We also saw some really crazy stuff. Like at that time, I mean, Hebron or Al Khalil like has been um, one of the worst places in terms of the occupation, in terms yeah. of everything. And even back then, like I remember we went to Hebron, it smelled like sewage where we were because they're not allowed to fix the, the broken streets or whatever. And the market street was like, I mean, again, this is a memory from when I was like 14. But <clears throat> I remember the Market Street had Israeli settlements built on top of the Palestinian buildings, literally, like, oh, wow. uh, like, 
Like there was one story of the old Palestinian shops of the Market Street. And then there was like more stories that it was a new building. That was like, I, it's it's crazy. Maybe this is like half remembered wrong because I was a little kid, but maybe it was like right next to it. I don't know, whatever. But um, they, I remember that they had put some of that orange mesh like for construction. Yeah. Between where the first level ends, so where the Palestinian market level ends, so that allegedly like Palestinians couldn't throw rocks up. Um, oh, as a, but, so the as entire a, street, wow. right. So they like cover the whole street with a cover so that nothing can be thrown up out of the, yeah, up it. to the second level or whatever. Um, but then also like became a thing where like, uh, there were stories of like, you know, people would like shoot down into the street and like whatever, you know, like, so like Hebron was like a really crazy place and whatever. And I remember coming back to New York and telling my friends about the trip, showing them pictures, whatever, and getting in fights with like my Jewish New York friends, all my friends, because they were, they were, they would then say like, they, they were accusing me of like, hating Jews because I was telling them about what I saw in Israel. Like it wasn't, it was like, it was just my first time being exposed to like the way that, um, in my opinion, like the Zionist, um, the Zionist agenda wants to have people blur these things. Yeah. Yeah. So people want to like the Zionist agenda includes teaching people that if you criticize Israel, you are criticizing Jews and therefore you are anti-Semitic and you're bad. And so we're teenagers absorbing this from our parents, you know, and from the New York City public school system and from all this stuff. And after coming back from that trip and having these interactions with my friends, I very quickly learned like, oh, okay, like not going to talk about this. Um, And that really lasted for me for years, like for years, I felt like my father was telling me one thing and my schools were telling me something else or my, that, you know, that's the an people, internal like, struggle, man. Like having yeah. to go through that. And like the school system, the people I knew, their families, whatever, everyone was like, and this is the nineties. It's like everyone, was, it was very simple back then. I feel like in a lot of ways, uh, but uh, yeah. So it was just like a no talking point. Like I did not talk about that. And even in, in, in college, I studied, so I mentioned that I studied Italian in high school. That was my first year of high school. Then I, I realized that I really loved studying languages. So I started doing Japanese the next year. Nice. And then I ended up living in Japan for a while and like really speaking Japanese and stuff. But um, by the time I got to college, I was like, I wanna do like languages. So um, I did my first semester of, of university at St. Andrews University in Scotland, which is like totally random. Um, it was a program that eventually I would go to a university in, in America in, or a college in Vermont um, that was famous for languages called Middlebury College. But um, Middlebury does a weird program where some of the first years are told that they have the first semester off. You can do whatever you want. Okay. You start late. You, you, you basically start a semester late and you end a semester late. So I graduated in, in January, not in 
May. September or whatever. Um, and so for that first semester, I went to Scotland, which was like a complete on a whim. Like I had met someone who went there and it sounded cool. So I just like enrolled or applied and got in. And, but St. Andrews is a great school. And that was, and, 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 but it's the British system where like, basically there's not pre, like in America with liberal arts colleges, you have to do like a science and a math and a history and a, and a language and a lot. In, in the UK, you don't. So when I was there, the first thing I did was enroll only in language classes. So I had Arabic, I had Italian, and I had, I think, German when I was there. Um, and that was all I did. And it was amazing. And so when I went to Middlebury after that, you know, I had to do the prerequisites, but essentially did the same thing. And I ended up studying Arabic, Japanese, Italian, French, and Swahili. Um, just like more from the stance of comparative grammar. I was, I just okay. like, love grammar. I was interested in how languages work. I wasn't trying to like be fluent in Swahili. It was more just like, I want to know about it. Um, and it was just what they had to offer. These were the options. Um, but I did do Arabic the whole time there. And so um, that was when I really properly learned Fusha. And of course, in a way, it's useless. It's not useless, but it's like that. No, but that's the, the, the grammatically correct. If right. you're into it, didn't make me like able to talk to my family or understand music that well or whatever like that it, it wasn't for that um but it was the basis of like you know grammar reading writing vocabulary blah blah um and but even throughout that whole time I was studying Arabic at Middlebury I refused to take politics classes like I did not I still was just like traumatized I was like I'm not talking about it um and after I graduated from Middlebury, cl a classic graduation story, but uh, me and a few friends went to like Europe afterwards for like okay. a little vacation. <laughs> and one of, no, one of my friends there, one of my friends from college, her family has a house in the Italian Alps. Um, and so we went there for our little post-grad trip. This is in February, because we had graduated in, in January. Um, and while I hadn't been to Europe, at this point, I had just spent two years in Japan because I majored in Japanese. Yeah. Uh, so I'd just been in Japan. I hadn't been to Europe since for a year, for a few years. And so it was nice to go to Europe again. Um, and while I was there, I went to Paris after the Alps and visited some other friends, actually some Japanese friends who were there from Tokyo. And then I have... This is a very long story, I won't get into it, but essentially I have one of my, my dad's big brother ended up living in Berlin. Okay. Um, and that's where he passed away a few years ago, but um, he was living in Berlin. So I was like, hey, I've never been to Berlin. I'll visit you guys also while I'm in Europe. And I went to Berlin to visit them for a week and literally stayed for 10 months before I came oh, wow. back to New York. Um, and I only came back to New York to like get some stuff and move back there. Um, and so I was lucky to be able to figure out a visa and like blah, 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 and ended up staying in Berlin for six years. Um, and that is where I first got into, before that I had nothing to do with art at all. And then in Berlin, the industry was galleries and blah, blah, blah. it was like 2008 when I got there. Um, and 
so I that's when I first took an internship at a gallery and started learning about contemporary art and so on and so forth. And that led to starting to make my own work. I never went to art school or anything. Um, but in Berlin is where I started to feel like people aren't super brainwashed about Palestine and Israel, <laughs> like they are in America. Yeah. Um, and I was starting to feel like it was a safer place to talk about it. And it's, and it's ironic because in a place like Germany, where there's such sensitivity to the history of the Holocaust and stuff, yeah. I, it was amazing to me that that didn't preclude people being there about the facts about Palestine. Because here, someone says Holocaust and suddenly you can't criticize Israel anymore. And I, I don't know why that is. Like it's, it, it's related, but it's unrelated. You know what I mean? Like there is a historical connection, but also like what is being done to Palestine right now has nothing to do with what was done to Jews back then. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, so... I was starting to come out of like my shell about, or just experience conversations about it that were not threatening and could actually be a little bit productive or healthy, let's say. Yeah, something that you can learn from, something that's a dialogue. Right, and then after a few years in Berlin, I met the man who would be my husband, um, who is from Israel. Okay. And he is like, totally like Russian, Polish kind of background, born and raised in Israel. Um, and, af and after dating for like four months, he invited me to come back to Israel with him for his father's 60th birthday. So after dating for four months was the first time that I had gone back to Israel or Palestine since I was a teenager. <clears throat> this was in the year 2012. Okay. So not even that long ago. Um, and, but, but when I had gone to, to Palestine when I was a teenager, um, we spent, I believe, like one night in Tel Aviv just after landing, because we flew into Tel Aviv. We landed, like we spent the night just to like sleep off the trip. And then now you're getting a different perspective. And then we went to Palestine for over a month. Like we did not re-enter Israel until we flew back to America. Like it was just, Israel was like the bouncing point yeah. to Palestine. And so I didn't really experience Israel at all when I was a teenager. Um, and so going with, um, his name is Amir. Going with Amir in 2012 was the first time that I ever went to Israel and was able to, start to figure out like what it's like there and like what it's about and it's funny because one of the things that struck me first when I went there with him that first trip was how Middle Eastern it was <laughs> in a way um, because I was expecting like Palestine is an Arab country and Israel I have the impression that it's basically like a white European country and so <clears throat> I was at first very like that was one thing I noticed very early on and then you know, at this point, I didn't know anything about Hebrew. Um, and so going on this trip, I started to try to learn to read and write Hebrew. Standard and, languages, the love for languages um, coming back again. Yeah. And uh, started to learn the first little bits of Hebrew. And I was like, wait, this is an Arabic word. Oh, this is Arabic. And this is, oh, it works the same way in Arabic. It works the same way in, like, and 
So the language started to show me that like, okay. So basically growing up, Arabic to me was like a beautiful language, right? And Hebrew to me sounded like what I think a lot of English speakers feel like German sounds like, yeah. like just harsh and like, like not nice, you know? So Hebrew sounded like that to me as well. Um, but then once I started learning Hebrew, I was like, I don't know, like, I just realized that it's literally, it's like Italian and Spanish or something. It's like, well, okay, it's not, it's more like, it's more like, a, it's more like, I would say it's more like German and Swedish, which is kind of a funny, like, <laughs> example to give. But it's that, like, superficially, it doesn't sound the same. And superficially, there's a few big gram grammatical differences that make the syntax and like the amount of words in a sentence different. Okay. You know, cause like Spanish and Italian, it's going to have like the same exact number of words and it's going to be like big word, big word, small word, big word, small word. Like the word, the sentences are going to mirror each other because the languages are very structurally. Yeah. Like the syntax, the vocabulary, the grammar is all very close. So, but Hebrew and Arabic is, it's not quite like that. It's like Swedish and German where, you know, German has cases, like, like German nouns decline into cases. Swedish don't. Okay. German, you know what I mean? Uh, and in, in German, they put the definite article before the noun. In Sweden, they put it before or after, depending on if it's definite or indefinite. Um, so there's like these structural differences that are very, they're superficial, but they matter because they change the flow of the language. They change, as I said before, like the amount of words in a sentence, stuff like that. And so Hebrew and Arabic are more like that. It's not as easy to see it at first, but then once you once you understand it you're like oh it is the same um and so I started to realize that and then the other major thing for me with Israel was also the music uh Israel has two types of it's almost like it, it, some of it reminds essentially like mainstream music is very like that is called Mizrahit and it's uh it is derived from Arab music as well as Greek music and essentially so when Jews came to Israel from Middle Eastern countries from Morocco from Libya from Yemen from Syria Iraq wherever they brought music of course as well and so there is a whole genre in Israel it's become like a kind of distinct genre that has okay. influence from from Yemeni music from Greek music from Egyptian music from like from everything, all the different types of like Middle Eastern musics. Um, and this music to me was familiar. It was in Hebrew and it was a slightly different style almost. Like I can hear the difference. Like if you would play me an Arabic song with no singing and a, and a, and a Mizrahit song with no singing, I can tell you if it's Arabs or if okay. it's Mizrahit. Through, 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 me like through melodies and there, tonalities and... There is a, a different style. Okay. A little bit different. They use a lot of the same traditional Arab, like, um, rhythmic, yeah. rhythmic patterns and stuff. Um, but so it, it's close. It is, but it, there's just like a, an essence that is a different taste that they have for the sounds. Um, 
and but it is but it is essentially Arab music just sung in Hebrew and what and one of the things that blew my mind very early on was that you have Israelis who are born in Israel who are maybe half Moroccan or half or even full Moroccan or whatever singing this genre of music they're singing in Hebrew but it's an Arabic sounding Arabic stylized genre of music and then they'll those same singers who um are Israeli but again from Arab they don't see it really as Arab but it is um but from Moroccan descent or from even like Georgian or like the kind of like that kind of Jewish descent um they'll be singing this music and then at a, at a certain point what, what happens a lot of them as they get famous they'll do like different albums and one of the albums will be like this person sings like the classics you know like they'll do like you know a special album like that of like really traditional songs and then they're singing it in Arabic so for me to see like Israelis putting out an album in Arabic was like wait I thought What's everyone fun? hated each other yeah. like I thought like this is not possible do you know what I mean so that was the beginning of me being like wait Clearly, I've been misinformed by also by my father as well as by society in America, etc. Um, and so that was the beginning of me starting to like dive deep in and be like, "Well, we need to figure this out." Um, and you see it with food there, of course, and a lot of people will be quick to to um, a lot of people will be quick to uh, to accuse of. Uh, stealing a lot of people you know are quick to be like you're stealing our food or you're stealing our music but it's a little more complicated because the way that I see it you know like it's also complicated because it also has to do with what the Israeli government wants what image they people want to, to project, believe, yeah, right of like um they would have you believe that Israel is mostly white essentially mostly Ashkenazi and it's not true. Like on the ground there, it's a very brown place. And I discovered relatively recently that um, the technical definition that the Israeli government holds for Ashkenazi is that you have one quarter, one grandparent was Ashkenazi. Wow, okay. Which means that you could have a brown Moroccan person who had one, Polish grandmother, and they'll be considered in the census Ashkenazi, which means that they're basically trying to nudge the statistics to show that Israel is a yeah. white country, when actually m most people are a very similar mix to me. They're half Polish, half Middle Eastern. Like, they're, you know, a lot of people are mixed like that there. And it was the first place that I ever felt like. I like growing up in New York, Polish and Palestinian was like a crazy mix. And in, in like Israel is like so normal, not specifically Palestinian, but like Arab and, and European, Eastern it's European just... or whatever. And so for me, it was very like, wait, I like, I'm like, these people are, it's not that they're my people, but it's like, they're people who are like me here, you know? Um, and, but I really needed to, I felt obviously like, I needed to figure this out, like, because obviously, like, everyone's Jewish, it's Israel, so it's not the same, but like, what, like, why, like, it was just confusing, because there was stuff like, 
these beautiful moments of exchange where like you have basically a whole genre of Arab music and it's just ignored because it's in Hebrew. And it's funny because when I talk about Arabic music, which I do a lot, um, I kind of feel like there's, there's, you know, the big genres, right? There's like Dabke, which is like Lebanon, yeah. Syria, Palestine. And then there's Khaliji, there's like Egyptian, like, uh, like Shab, like whatever, um, Shabi. And that's kind of like, Egyptian was basically what became like general pop music in the like 80s and 90s. Um, and then there's North African, there's like, there's Rai music, there's Berber music. Um, so that's like, but so that's kind of like the major genres and all of them can have versions of Tarab. So Tarab, I don't really consider a genre because that crosses all the genres. Like okay. there's Khaliji Tarab and there's Dabki Tarab and there's whatever. But um, the thing is, Mizrahit, the Israeli one, is another one of these regional types of music. It's just like, because it's in Hebrew, I feel like anyone coming from an Arab perspective is going to just disregard it. Like, this is Israeli. Forget that, you know? But it really is coming from the tradition of Arab music. Like, you have Israeli singers routinely singing Um Kothum, singing Feruz, oh, wow, singing Abdel Halim Hafez, and like whole albums of it. Like, literally, like, I think I have one on a tape here somewhere. One of my favorite singers is named Zahava Ben. She's 100% Moroccan, Israeli, okay. Jewish. And she has a whole album of, she has two albums of Zahava Sings Arabic. And it's just all these classic songs. And it happens to me so often that Hebrew song, like Israeli, like uh, Mizahit songs that I know, I'll be randomly listening to some Arabic playlist or something and I'll hear a melody that I recognize from the Hebrew and realize that that's a cover or or a sample of this old Arabic song you know and so like that to me was just like I can't like I I, I gravitate towards these things like I gravitate towards these shared things and I want to I'm interested in exploring like why that's kind of people are okay with that like Mizrahit is like the, a huge genre in Israel. Like it's, uh, it is a little bit like hip hop is here where like socially it's seen as like lower class music or whatever. Um, but it's like a huge, like basically just like here, almost all major, of course there's still like rock and acoustic based you have your pop standards, music. But... but most pop music in Israel is informed by Mizrahit now. Like most current like dance music that has in 2020, of course, it has like some hip hop undertones and stuff, but it has a lot of the Mizrahit, like the Arabic um, drum beats and style of singing and stuff in the generic, like the Israeli Britney Spears or whatever is like one of them is like this girl named Edin Ben who's like half Moroccan, half Polish, actually. Um, and so it, so it, so it is very present in Israeli culture, and it comes directly from Arab culture. And as I said before, it's not a matter of stealing and appropriating. It's just like they. I mean, so many of my friends 
who are totally Israeli, if you ask them about it, they're like, oh yeah, my grandmother spoke Arabic to us. Like, they don't even think about it, but it's like, your grandma is from Morocco, your grandma's from Yemen. Like, it's, so it's like, I just like, couldn't let go of that stuff. I'm like, wait, we do not have to hate each other here. Like, it's complicated, but like, there's a lot to work with There's a lot of similarity. There's there's shared nature that we can work work on a little bit further. And it goes towards also food, like Israeli, like common Israeli cuisine includes obviously a ton of Levantine food, um, but also includes stuff like shakshuka, which is Moroccan, and jachnun, which is uh, Yemeni, and so on and so forth. Um, and again, this is not, I think from a Western perspective, you see it as like they're, they're appropriating, but it's like actually people came from Yemen and they made their food and other people liked it. So it just became like a popular food. Like, what are you going to do? You know? Um, and that, and, and one thing from history going back to like Roman times that for me gives me some perspective is that essentially people have been eating like chickpeas and tahini in that land since for thousands of years. No matter who's been there, if it's the Romans, if it's the Ottomans, if it's whatever, it's just a local food. So like for whatever reason, like whatever you can say, unfortunately or not, but Israel is currently in that place. Like that place is currently called Israel, but why wouldn't they also still eat hummus? Like that's been eaten there for thousands of years. Generations. A number of ruling um, governments, and people have all eaten those same things because those are the local things. So like Israelis eating hummus and Israelis eating olives and Israel, like, it's just like, of course they do. That's what's there. To n- that's not to say that like exporting hummus to America as an Israeli thing is fair. Cause that is, that is where it becomes like appropriation and whatever. But, um, but in terms of like the culture on the ground there, it's like, it is quite Middle Eastern because it's in the Middle East. And like, um, I, the way that I see it is that the European Jews that came and basically like the, the, the early Zionist like movement to, to, to move to Palestine in the 1920s. Um, I feel like they were bringing a lot of European culture and their vision for a Jewish state was a very Eurocentric one. Um, And I think that a lot of things were put in place with that in mind, um, culturally. But what I feel like I've observed is the longer that Israel is there where it is, um, the more that those European things kind of falling out of fashion. Meaning like food wise, for example, like no one wants to eat like a pot roast and like like milky coleslaw and stuff like that in the desert. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's just not, you want light, fresh, you want olives, you want cold what, things, you want, do you know what I mean? The chicken right. like is being eaten because that is- the reason. Yeah. You want lemon, you want fresh, you want like whatever, you don't want 
a heavy it's the climate it's all the time it's the climate and so in a lot of ways those things are like less and less popular like less and less popular you think of it as like what your grandma makes because it's like the grandmas are coming from europe you know um and what's also really wild i mean i don't want to i i try very hard not to use like my husband's or like my family his family there as like my sociology experiment but it's very interesting i'm constantly observing these things like uh, my husband's grandmother uh is an amazing woman who came from russia and like you know brought her family to israel um and but she's like totally like she speaks hebrew and she speaks russian and like is just very i mean she spent most of like half her life in russia like she's a russian woman really um and but when she makes us dinner, it'll be like, it'll be Russian food. It'll be like blintzes and schnitzel kind of stuff. And then she'll have tahini sauce and olives. And for me, like an old Russian grandma, having those things in her house as like just part of everyday life is like crazy. Do you know what I mean? Like that to me shows like, there is so much exchange happening that people just like don't even, they're just like, oh, it's, it's like a sauce. It's, but it's like, it's, it's, I, I think it's really meaningful, you know? Um, and, and uh, you know, that happens a lot, I think, especially also with like in liberal younger circles, right? Where it's like, they, they, they love, you know, I think that a lot of my younger Israeli friends like are really like, um, they they some of them have gone to palestine which they're not supposed to do yeah and they just really they want to they want to know palestinians they want to learn about it they want to be respectful they want to be fair and they and these are a lot of the same people who are very active in anti-occupation movements in israel right so friends like one of my friends who's an artist um one of her like her siblings are very involved in this breaking the silence uh movement which is uh essentially people who served in the Israeli military okay. who are coming out with stories and exposing what they were made to do and stuff like that and like wow. breaking the silence and whatever. So these are the young Israelis and they want, they so, so I think that people who are more um, like Arabs and Palestinians who are more aggressive in their attitude will often accuse these people of like, why do you want to come to Palestine? Like, we don't need you here. Like, why? Whereas on the liberal, like Western side, they're like, they're trying to like appreciate it and understand it. And like, they think Get it's beautiful, yeah. which again is why I said like a lot of my, my, my collectors and stuff are Jewish. It's the, it's that it's like, they, they want to appreciate Palestinian things. They want to appreciate, you know, I have a, like, there is this, like, like, like I have a good amount of people who are Israeli. Like a lot of my works are in Israel. <laughs> because oh, wow, okay. the collectors buy it even from my gallery in New York or LA and it ends up in Israel because it is these kinds of Israelis who you know I'm not saying that there there's not problematic moments but in general I would rather them want to tr appreciate Palestinian culture want to whatever and I try to use that as a starting point to try to get them to take the next steps not just cultural appreciation but like start to be vocal about the government and about the occupation like it's it's the obvious next step but i it's, think that you have to 
you have to you have to push it because it's not a comfortable next step. It's easier to just feel like you bought a Palestinian artwork and so you're good. You know what I mean? Like so you appreciate Palestine. But it's like but you like, said, right? Like it's it's the initial kind of way of getting into that conversation. And then once you purchase or once you kind of start to learn more, you educate yourself. Right. And by definition, you start to kind of walk on that first step. Right. And then for me, so the so all of these things that I've been describing, like all of the weird cultural things that I noticed upon starting to travel there, um, have led me. And this again, this is concurrent with my grandmother's story and realizing that, like, wait, I kind of am Jewish too. And the fact that I've been married now for almost seven years. Wow. Um, and so I essentially live in a Jewish household. Like we do the holidays, we go to family for Passover, we every year, it's just like, I, I live in a Jewish household and um, have spent, I now, you know, before Corona, I go to Israel and Palestine, you know, as I said before, like three or four times a year, a lot of the time without my husband, but I stay with his family. I go to his family every Friday night for, for Shabbat, Shabbat dinner. Yeah. I like, have been there by myself for Passover in Hebrew, like, I, you know what I mean? Like I've, they're my family and I've like grown into that in that sense where it's part of my culture as well. So between the like historical question of my grandmother's heritage added to my lived, like being part of a Jewish family makes me feel like on that side as well. So I'm Palestinian and I'm, you know, we weren't raised religious. So I, it's also like, I'm not, it's not like I'm Christian or something. And so I have that like going against the Jewish exposure. Yeah. But so, so, and I'm very passionate obviously about Palestine in terms of ending the occupation and just letting people live like fairly and have a chance at a good life and whatever, you know? Um, But but I am very much like I, I do in a, in a, it's not that I love Israel. I don't want to say it like that, but like it's Israel is a place, it's a place I exist. And, 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 and something that has, I've started to essentially think of myself not as just Palestinian. I think of myself as a Palestinian who lives in Israel, which is, you know, there's like 2 million of them. Um, who live in Jerusalem or 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 Haifa or Jaffa, these main, and then there's also a lot of like smaller Arab villages throughout Israel. Um, but there are millions of Palestinians who are born in Israel, which means they speak Hebrew as well as Arabic, and they have found a way inside of themselves to live with Israelis, not to hate them, individually you can hate what the government is doing you can hate the occupation but you understand that these are just people born here too like it wasn't their choice a lot of them at this point now a few generations in it's like and and even locally that was another thing that was important for me to to experience how israelis or a lot not all israelis of course but a lot of israelis a lot of the ones that i'm around they talk about american jews that moved to israel French Jews that moved to Israel, South African Jews that moved to Israel as being crazy. Those are the ones who are like, 
moving to settlements who are like doing a lot of the the most I mean that propaganda and everything is working is because these people grow up in countries hearing this propaganda and then they move to Israel thinking like they need to fight for Israel Israelis who are born there are much more likely to be to question the occupation because and they, to question they've been because they with, were just born into yeah, it they, they see it yeah and they know and and they're around palestinians as well as, as you know because you know you can be a, a new york jew and never meet a palestinian or never meet you know what i mean in your whole life and then one day you move to israel why would you care about the palestinians yeah. you know what i mean like so it's interesting and, and that was very important for me to hear as well because it made it clear to me that actually this isn't something that your average Israeli really needs to hear about. And that's where I was like, I need to turn my attention to like an American audience and talk about this stuff for people who are not hearing, who are not aware of this, of how it actually is there and how often integrated a lot of it is. And, you know, I don't want to paint too like beautiful of a picture because all sorts of injustices still happen. And even, you know, racially, like in Israel, um same as anywhere else in the world like brown people are disenfranchised whether they're in israel what's crazy is that it's also jews like there was a whole black panther movement in israel in the 70s because moroccan moroccan jews and yemeni jews were disenfranchised and they were they organized literally it was called the israeli black panthers angela davis and like people from the black panther party back then in america had like contact with them and approved of them even using the same name and the same imagery. And it was a movement of, of Brown Jews in Israel against this like European mentality, white European uh, society. And, um, and that still exists today in like microaggressions. Um, And, you know, it was a whole, it's, it's a very interesting thing there. I'm very, I'm very interested in this um, in terms of like, I believe that um, they call them Mizrahim or uh, um, like Eastern Jews basically instead of Ashkenazi. So there's like Ashkenazi or there's Mizrahim and Mizrahim includes Sephardic, which is like Spain. Um, But Mizrahim, is a word in Hebrew that means basically Jews from the Middle East. And I believe that even the the invention of this word is an effort to keep those Jews feeling like they're not Arab. They're separate from the Arabs. There's Ashkenazis, there's Mizrahis, and there's Arabs. And whereas I believe like, I'm sorry, hate to tell you, what you are but like you're moroccan you're that's arab judaism is a religion arabs can be jewish they can be christian they can be muslim they can be atheist they can be whatever but like you're from yemen you're 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 arab <laughs> but you speak arabic you like you know what i mean it's like how are you like you move to israel and suddenly you're not you're conjoining arabic religions and, and, and suddenly heritage. you're yeah but it's it's crazy because a lot of i mean it's also kind of quite well known in a sense that like, for example, Moroccan Jews in Israel are very proud to be Moroccan and they have no problem saying they're Moroccan, but they would never say they're Arab. And that is like, it's essentially propaganda. It's brainwashed. It's like, 
Arab was equated with bad. And I think the Mizrahis in Israel were um, taught that they need to show that they're not Arab. Otherwise, they're going to be treated as badly as Arabs are treated (laughs) by the Israeli government, whatever. And so there's a lot of that 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 I find so interesting because um, I think that I'm seeing a lot more in Israel, a lot of young artists and stuff who are of either Libyan or Moroccan or Yemeni background making work about this and kind of reclaiming that Arabness and recognizing that, um, you know, for me, something that I like, not like doing, but that I, that I kind of, it blew my mind one day when I thought about it this way was, um, I think it was the last time I was in Israel um, or whatever, the past few years, um, we're so used to thinking about Israel as like Arabs versus Jews, which is an incorrect premise, as I said, because a lot of the Jews are Arabs. And so it's really, um, Israelis versus Palestinians, or even not even all Israelis, but like Zionists versus whatever you want to say. But we're so we're so used to thinking about it as like Arab versus Jew, like that dichotomy. Um, But one day, I had the thought of like, applying American identity politics to Israel in terms of race. And suddenly you can see because in America, for example, it's talked about as like, basically like white men in control. And then like Latin communities, black communities in America are often like at odds with each other. And the whole idea is like divide and conquer, right? Like keep the, keep the like non-white, non-male people fighting amongst themselves so that they don't all join together and fight you, right? So it's like, so people talk about America like that and it's like a classic like scenario. But if you start to look at Israel that way, it just like, it totally blew my mind to see it as like white European men who are running the government, who always have run the government. And then keeping the Arabs and the brown Jews separate, keeping the Bedouins separate, everyone has to be fighting each other amongst that so that they just don't bother you, you know? And we can do whatever we want with our regime. And it it totally changes like how, how the problem of Palestine and Israel is perceived. Cause it's like, oh, the occupation is like a white European colonial exercise. It's not about Judaism. (laughs) It's about white men. You know what I mean? And then it, and then it, but I love, I'm not saying that this is the be all and end all. And this is the truth. I'm just saying, I love the exercise of turning it over where suddenly Jewish and Arab doesn't even matter. It's not about that. It's just about like white or non-white power and resources versus like no power and no resources. Like, and um, there's a classic, uh, like a, like a very common thing that Israelis will say is that um, white liberal Israelis will be the first to like vote for an Arab in the Israeli government. Yeah. But 
wouldn't invite an Arab who knocks on their door into their house. But the, the Mizrahis, the brown Jews in Israel, they tend to vote against the Arabs' interests. They tend to be more conservative. And I personally believe it's like a Stockholm syndrome kind yeah. of like trying to prove that they're not Arabs. So they are mean to the Arabs, um, which is just like so twisted and psychologically, and it's not their fault, but it's been done to them by the, by the white power. Um, but they'll often vote more conservatively, but mix socially with Arabs, no problem. Because obviously you can see with your eyes, we're the same, yeah. you know? Um, and that's like a classic thing though, is that there's like, it's, 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 you know, you hear people talking about that as well too here. Like it's not just Republicans that are racist. It's liberals are also racist. They just like to show off that they're not or that they're doing something good for someone who's black or something. But actually when it comes down to it, they'll also call the police <laughs> on you if they feel threatened yeah. or whatever. Like that 100%. is like a big, con it's a big conversation in America right now. And it's like a classic one in Israel as well when it comes to Mizrahis and Arabs. Um, so yeah, I don't know. As, as you're seeing, as this conversation winds here and there, the point is that this is like very complicated. And that, that at the end of the day is like the one thing I want to get across to people. <laughs> because my biggest issue with Palestine and Israel is people think it's just like, they're right, they're wrong. It's not white or black. This is, this is good, this is bad. This is, you know, this happened or that happened and that's it, you know? And there's just no, there's just, it's just like, and, 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 and it's not just that people feel that way. It's like, I was raised in that, like that struggle that I described to you of like my youth was being caught in the middle of like those two things. And I was lucky enough to be actually lucky to be in the middle of it. Because if I had been on just one side, I wouldn't know. Yeah. And I would be like- It gives I you would... a bigger perspective. I'd well, actually... yeah, because if, because I, because I, as I, I really hate to do this, but I do argue with Palestinian friends all over the world. Because <laughs> I'm just like, you're being crazy. Like, it's not that simple. No, it's, it's, it's good to be able to understand both. And you are living both, both parts of the society, right. of the world, and that's, the narratives. But, and that's also why, I mean, that's the whole thing for me is people like, you know, it feels like I'm always talking about this and that, you know, people ask me if I ever just like am tired of talking about it or whatever. But it's like, honestly, it's like, it's just never been an option for me not to talk about it. And in a way, it's like, it doesn't feel like work to me. It's just like my life all the time. Like when I'm like, I, I always like to say like, when I'm at the dinner table having dinner with my husband, just me and him, it's still Palestine and Israel. Like it's still there. Like we're still, like we'll be having a conversation among ourselves, no one hearing us, not publicly, yeah. nothing. And we'll get into an argument because he'll say something and I'll say, that's not fair. Like that's not true. And we'll like get into a discussion about freaking Palestine and Israel. Like just, and that's in my relationship. That's, you know what I mean? It's, it's everywhere. It's always, and I, and, and to be fair, it's the same with my father. Like he'll, cause my father tends to also be a little more 
Palestinian sided, obviously. And, but some of the stuff that he says, some of the, the words that I hear come out of his mouth feel almost naive to me. And I'm like, I know you know better than this. You spend a lot of time there. Like, you don't have to say it that simply or that kind of extremely, you know? Like, you know it's more complicated than that. But he's very guilty of, like, simplifying. Um, and so it's like my father. Like, I literally will be on the phone with my dad and suddenly find myself arguing with him about Palestine, you know? And it's like, so it's like, it's not even, it's not like this is my job. Like I'm, when I'm at this work, I'm life. talking about Palestine. Yeah. And, and it's, so it's, it's, and it's like, I don't know. It's like, I love, I don't know. Like I kind of love it in a sense where like it, um, I don't know. It is what it is. It's okay. Let me, let me, also, let me take, yeah. let's step back for a second. Okay. What I'd be curious to kind of understand now is that having heard all of this and the context and, and where you're kind of coming from and framing it, how does your work evolve? Let's jump back into Berlin and you starting to understand the art world. Right, right. And falling into that. How does contextually what's happening in your personal life, right? And what's happening in, in your periphery, you understanding the art world or getting into it, you're, the six years that you spent in Berlin, mm. getting into the threes, all of these, how does that now formulate and get to where you are today? Professionally. It's basically, it's basically because I met my husband and I was feeling guilty that I was dating an Israeli. I was feeling guilty then also when we started going to Israel. Like when my father, who by the way, is like best friends with my husband, like they go to the movies all the time <laughs> without me. They go to dinner, they go to an artist talk, they do all this stuff. I don't do any, like, I'm like, you go, I don't want to go. And like, they'll, they just like, it's not even about me going. It's like, Amir will text me like having dinner with your dad <laughs> home later. I'm like, okay. Um, but when, when I first told my dad I was dating an Israeli, he wasn't pleased. Um, just conceptually, I think, you know, like once he met Amir, he was like, okay. And, and to be fair, not that I need to justify anything, but Amir refused his army service. He's a good Israeli, right? He like refused to be in the army. He left Israel when he was 20 and never went back. And he doesn't, he like never wants to live there again. Which is kind of a shame because I kind of want to live in Israel, <laughs> Palestine, but, um, whatever, we just spent a lot of time there. But um, essentially, I think that I was feeling guilty or something a little bit and channeled that into feeling like I want to connect with Palestine. I want to be more Palestinian somehow, you know what I mean? Uh, and I I had always been a craft, crafty kid. Like I was when I was really young, I was like obsessed with like origami, not in a, like in a, like I was going to conventions kind of way, like really like professional origami. Um, and then like, you know, in my early twenties, whatever, got into like doing crochet and like different kinds of weaving, like whatever, like just playing with craft stuff, um, just as hobbies though, like not as art. Yeah. And then, I think I was looking for, so around the time that I first went to Israel with my husband, um, I 
I think I was looking for like a Palestinian kind of craft thing to do. And Tatriz was like the most obvious thing. Like we just grew up with it in our house and it's obviously such a representative like Palestinian thing. Um, and it was just something that I seemed like I could do. Like it, it's a needle and thread. Like what's so hard about it, you know? Um, and it more, or more, I would say that it's accessible. Like it's easy. I can get a needle and thread and some fabric and just like start trying to play with it. So um, that's when I started doing embroidery was, uh, yeah, like the same year, like 2012. And um, the next few years after that was um, basically looking back, I feel like it was art, it was art school, but like homeschooling art school. Yeah where it was a, it was just like what I, in retrospect, I can see that what I needed was to practice doing it, to get good at doing it, like technically. Um, but also my first attempts at making art that is, that has some sort of concept or conceptual element to it, not just visual, but like it's about something like, and so like in the early years, it was definitely, it was like, art school stuff it was like not really good but I was getting slowly better at doing the embroidery which was I think the most important thing um and just trying to learn how to take an idea and make it into an artwork that like says something you know you're looking at um, concepts beforehand and this was also great because at the time I was working in galleries I was an artist liaison, I was working closely with artists. I was getting to see like their processes. I was uh, writing the press text for them and often like with them. So uh, again, like learning how to talk about your work once you have an idea and then you make something and how you like try to describe that and whatever, just like learning all that stuff by doing that as my day job and then starting to try to like do that in artwork. Um, so yeah, so I think it really does have to do very much with, but at the same time, if you think about it, like, you know, I think in one, in one sense, if you say like, well, once I started feeling guilty about going to Israel, I wanted to be more Palestinian, whatever. But you could also see it as going to Israel that, that first time and, the, and then over the, you know, the few years, actually, basically since then, we've gone at least twice a year since 2012 but i've gone sometimes four times a year sometimes for two months at a time like you know so i really spent a lot of time there but um you could think of it as remember before all of this happened i was closed i didn't want to talk about it and in a sense once i felt comfortable talking about it that's when the artwork started coming out so that's i think a more like positive way to look at it it's not based on guilt it's based on openness maybe um and yeah so it's just been about that <laughs> i'd say I, I i love that it's it's and I, I and i love that that word that you said that once you started to be open up as you started to open up about it that's when you were able to find this the work that's now coming out of you that, that you're being that you're able to kind of do um we're, we're going very long but i just have two questions the figurative landscapes and the symbolism behind the artworks. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to kind of understand when you do show it to people, and I know 
now because of the way you said. I mean, it's, it's very interesting your story, right? Because you're you're going in not from the art traditional art background, but like from understanding every single way of a gallery, and then taking your passion and and applying that, and then the rhetoric and the narratives that embody you, and and, right. and fully come encompassing that. What I would be very curious about is the stories and the narratives that you do um, showcase in in your in your work. When people do see them. And especially in a, in, a, in, a, in a rhetoric of Palestine, where a lot of people who are from there have not been there, but have a, a memory or, 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 or something that has been this there. image, right? right? They have this image. Right. But when you, when you say in your work and you showcase this, this landscape, this really beautiful landscape, and everyone from Palestine or has something to do with Palestine, has Jordanian Palestinian or Lebanese Palestinian or from any other place, has this thing in their in their mind, right? This this romanticized mm-hmm, land mm-hmm. that they've that they that they, they speak about. How how does that conversation kind of happen, or what's the first? Well, I mean, well, that's the whole thing. Is I mean, I, I realize, and it's funny because my father, my father is like a strange version of this because he goes to Palestine, okay, but. Still, when he talks about Palestine, when he's not there, when he's in New York, for example, it's like, it's as though he's never been there. He's talking about it like this fantasy place, you know? Um, To him, it's all like rolling hills and olive trees and his favorite foods and like whatever, you know? Um, But that's something, it's funny because I have, so I've been been doing Arabic um, conversation lessons the past few years because I spoke Fusha, but I never spoke Palestinian properly. And I'm still, I keep like stopping and then starting again and so on. But um, I'm doing it again now currently. But my teacher, or the teacher that I've had for the past few years is a guy who grew up in Syria in a refugee camp and then Lebanon for a little bit and then moved to Brazil. So now he lives in Brazil. And the way he talks about Palestine, it's also, I have friends in Dubai who are like half Palestinian or something. The way they all talk about Palestine. That's why I I'm ask, like, you, I have a lot of friends. Yeah, I'm like, you just like, I don't know, like it's beautiful, but it's also like totally make-believe. And, um, and I loved, so that is not why I did landscapes in the beginning. Like I did landscapes just as actually, um, I had the idea from Etel Adnan, who's a Lebanese yeah, painter. Yeah, beautiful painter, yeah. And um, I just loved her work, and I loved how her writing is so political, and then her paintings are not, but they somehow, like, embody, or I don't know, like, in, the, in her book, The Arab Apocalypse, which I, like, always have on my desk, <laughs> um, the sun in The Arab Apocalypse it's all about the sun, the book, and it and the sun represents the colonizer, right? And um, it's this whole kind of epic poem about the sun, but and it's very important that in at, at a point in the book, the sun is also it dies, um, and so it all has to do with like colonial, like whatever. Yeah. But in her landscapes, which she says, for the record. She says that her landscapes are a break and a reminder that there's still beauty in the world. 
that's her paintings. Okay. I don't really see, I'm like, but there's a sun, like a big red sun in this landscape. And there's a sun in this book. Like you're telling me that it's not like maybe a little bit related or something. I don't know. Like I'm just saying, and I think that there's, I have like that same kind of relationship with like what I talk about versus what you see where there is maybe a direct link or maybe this is just like celebrating something beautiful and Palestinian. And then my mission is to talk about Palestine and Israel and like change people's minds and do something about it, you know, Um, which is also fine. But um, the idea, uh, so before I was doing landscapes, I was just kind of doing more abstract color blocks and stuff in the, in Tatris and her landscapes just gave me the idea to just try to make like a shape out of this one color and then make a shape out of another color, but do it like cutting through the pattern, not going according to the pattern. Um, so she just gave me, like her work just gave me that idea and is not the reason that I am still doing landscapes years later. Landscapes for me became, first of all, formally. Like I personally don't really have a very easy time with pure abstraction. I, it doesn't, I don't know. I like, don't know what I'm looking at. You don't know if which way is up, like that whole thing, you know? Um, and even with formal color work, it still just like, doesn't do it for me. Like all the like, you know, what's his name? Like Judd, like the square paintings, like this kind of color theory, it's boring. I I just find it boring. I'm just like, I don't know. Anyway, but with Atel Adnan, like, I think something I loved about her work so much was that you have a sense like, you know what you're looking at, okay? It's a mountain, it's the sun. But at the same time, but that, everyone has like a point of entry, right? It's accessible. It's it's easy for people to look at and appreciate. People don't feel like, I don't know about art. They just see a pretty, it's pretty, it's beautiful. You know what I mean? It's a mountain, it's landscape. Um, so I love that accessibility about it. But then also I believe that for me, like, you know, Atel has pieces, like a lot of, like one of her tricks that I've noticed is that she'll use two shades that are very, very close to each other. Like okay. almost, you can't tell the difference. And in between them, she'll put a very different color. So it'll be like a beige and then like red and then like a slightly lighter beige, but almost exactly the same. So for, at first glance, it looks like though that's one thing with like this red cutting through it. But then when you really look at the piece, you realize they're two different colors and they're kind of, it just adds, I don't know, like that kind of color work for me is really exciting. Like I love, I love when I love work with color in that sense, like formal work with color. But the fact that it's a landscape, I believe for me personally, makes my brain not sit and be like, what is this? And get past that and be like i know what it is so i can then appreciate the landscape like appreciate the colors appreciate her choices of adding this purple thing right here or whatever you know what i mean like um i think that having it be for example a landscape gives 
the viewer the ability to like locate themselves. They know which way is up. They know what they're looking at and can get, look at the piece on a deeper level. Then. You also kind of disarm in a way, right? Because right. it's Because it's not threatening. It's like, yeah. it's, a, it's a landscape. I can look at a landscape, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, so that, so that, is, that is like all the formal reasons for why I love and continue to work with landscapes. Um, but when I had my first exhibition of the landscapes in 2017, um, I came up with this language about the minds of the diaspora and the images, because essentially I'm making up, I'm not looking at a mountain and drawing the yeah, shape. Of course. Like I'm, this is just like, it's just about color and composition like I want a lot of this color and a little of this color and then a little bit of this other color and then the sky or like a big amount of this other color and like it's just about that but um but so some of them are like slow mountains and some of them are like big canyons that go like that and some you know what I mean like there's all sorts of shapes of of mountains or of different landscapes um and so I love the idea that any one of these could be Palestine in the imagination of someone who's like yearning to go there, but can yeah. never go. And the same goes for the colors. That way using kind of fantastical colors, like making the sky purple and the mountains yellow. It goes back like, to that. It's about fantasy. It's about, you know, dreams and imagination and whatever, which also ties into um, this, you know, the whole idea of nostalgia, which is something that I also talk about a lot because you know, this is, again, it goes back to my father and how I believe that he, I believe like I kind of, it's, I, I, I call it inherited nostalgia, but it's basically like he grew up really connecting to the stories of Palestine and really yearning for Palestine for whatever reason. And uh, I inherited that from him, but also um, in terms of this nostalgia's effect on the physical, like the visual, is that, you know, I imagine my father being a little kid and hearing stories about Palestine from his grandparents mm -hmm. who were from there. Um, and, you know, when you hear a story, you have to imagine it for yourself. Yeah. It, right? it, you have to picture it. It's a Chinese whisper thing happening, but because of the way the storyteller is telling you the story, you're imagining it in, in your own Right, you imagine it in your brain. And so basically you're taking the information they give you and then you're mixing it with your imagination and then you have a visual. And then when my father grew up and he had me, he told me the same stories, but his story is already his imagination mixed in with the story. And then on top of that, I then yes. add my imagination when I hear it. So there's like layers of filters of nostalgia that is obscuring the reality and making it more and more fantasy. And so, and I, that's something because, you know, especially in the art world today or whatever, in society today, you get a lot of first generation artists and you get a lot of immigrant artists talking about these issues, these talking about immigration, yeah. talking about culture, but you don't really hear from second generation very much. Cause it's like, 
I feel like a lot of the time people are very assimilated by then or whatever. And more so than that, for me to talk about immigration is a little, it's kind of like my family immigrated a hundred years ago. Like it's not it's my not story. A, it's, not, it's not your story. Yeah. I think it's more interesting. Um, it's more my story to talk about this, like nostal- this nostalgia that I've inherited through generations of being American, but also these strings holding us on to Palestine, you know, and like it, for me, this is more my, this is, that's my story, you know? Um, and so the, those are the reasons that I stick with landscapes now, even though, yeah, like it's not just about, you know. I love it. It's, it, it's not it's just awesome. about as Adnan. And there's also, do you know the artist Paul Giragossian? No. He's a little more obscure, but he was from Jerusalem. He's actually Armenian-Palestinian. And he was working a lot in like the 60s and 70s. But he, you should look up his work as well, because he does the same thing that Atal Adnan does with with landscapes, where she really, it's minimal landscapes. It's almost abstract. A lot of them are abstract, minimal landscapes. He does that with the human form. Got it, okay. So he has artworks that, um, like some of them are like groups of people kind of standing really long human shapes. And then other pieces are so abstracted that they're just basically like vertical stripes. But knowing that some of his work is a little bit more figurative human shapes, you can start to see in the abstracted in the abstracted ones that this actually is still That's referencing right. these these are people the same way that Essa Adnan she draws a line like that and you see that it's a horizon but for any other artist it could just be a line but because you know she's the coming from a place of, of land because it's the, in the context of landscapes you know that this is a landscape even if it's very abstract yeah and Paul Giragostian does the same thing with human forms um so it's not just and i love i love that level of abstraction as well like i think that it's it's a more comfortable place for me because <laughs> i'm like uh it's it's still something but it's also more about the color paul gergossian is the same it's about colors it's about the formal elements you know it's not really about the people it's just using that as a as a vehicle Got to it. make color combinations and whatever um okay i feel like that answered that question yeah, yeah that was that was brilliant I, I need to look up that artist jordan last question for you if you could describe i mean I'm, I'm sure that in the conversation you've described so many experiences but if you could just narrow it down to three key experiences that changed you that changed your life the most mm. i mean i feel like i mentioned all of them it's I, gonna I, be I would say like, I mean, I would say my, like my cousin Hannah living with us. I had a feeling, yeah. Meeting my husband and going to Israel um, are like two major ones. Um, And I mean, I think that another thing that really has been important for me, which I didn't talk about at all, is that I work with women in Palestine on collaborative artworks. And it's very meaningful for me to work on artworks where they embroider and I embroider. And at the end of it, 
we result in one artwork that was made by, because it's important to me because, you know, if, if, if the whole goal or the whole impetus for making this kind of artwork was that I want to connect with Palestine, it's like more than I could have ever dreamed of to like literally connect with Palestine, like go and work with the women doing tatris in the traditional way and get to work with them and get to be a part of their community in a sense um, where they love what I'm doing and they, you know, comment to me, they love these colors I'm using, they inspired them to use it in their personal project and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like that is major for me. Um, but also what's very important about that for me is that I, you know, as someone in this position of both sides and someone who believes in um, knowing each other, communication, like uh, working through this conflict together and not just blindly hating each other, right? it's important for me to work with these women and also some men, like my friend Kusai is this guy who basically, um, he's from the Deheshe refugee camp in Bethlehem. And he um, is like my best friend there. And he does a lot of like, he helps me if I'm not there, he'll like bring fabric to the women or whatever, help facilitate the production of yeah. these pieces. Um, but he, his wife, who used to work for many years at the, there's a nonprofit organization in Israel and Palestine called the, uh, the Parents Circle Family Forum. But it's basically um, a center for people who have lost family members in the conflict. So Israelis and Palestinians who come there because they don't want to hate each other. So it's like group, therapy sessions, group sessions where you're sharing your stories and you're connecting that you're both have lost people and that you both don't want anyone else to lose anyone and you just want to stop this. You know, it's like that whole thing. So his wife used to work for that. He's worked for many years in other NGOs and stuff. And um, such a long story, but we have a fashion brand together with these two Israelis. Nice. So me, Kusai, and two Israelis. It's called Adish and it's completely made in Israel and Palestine. There's Palestinian embroidery by the same women. We work with over a hundred women in Palestine and uh, we work uh, with factories in Palestine as well as factories in Israel. We work with Druze factories in the North of Israel. We work with Bedouins in the South of Israel. Like it's a really cool brand and we're in opening ceremony in Dover Street Market Amazing. and blah, blah, blah. But um, this brand uh, and also my direct work with the women on my artworks show me that, because I think to an extent, I'm an outsider in a lot of ways. Like I'm American, I'm a New Yorker, like, uh, you know, and I think that it's very important for me to see Palestinians who are from the camps or who are from, like they're from Palestine. They live there now, they can't leave it's important for me to see that they too believe that knowing each other, cooperation, communication, like this is the future and this is how we're gonna make it out of this. Um, because a lot of Palestinians don't feel that way. A lot of Israelis don't feel that way, whatever. 
but a lot of them do. And it's very, like, I would feel almost, I would feel wrong speaking publicly and sharing that opinion if I didn't know real Palestinians who have really hard lives who feel the same way. Because I, I, in a sense, am, ta- am speaking for Palestinians a lot of the time, which is not really appropriate because I'm a, an American. So like, I is not my life. I didn't grow up in a camp in Palestine, you know? And so it's very, very, very central <laughs> in a sense to my ability to be able to speak about this stuff that I'm following their example. I'm not gonna say we should know each other, we should cooperate if all Palestinians said no. Yeah. Then it's like, who am I to say that? And it's really hard because sometimes I doubt myself because I, have interactions with other friends who don't believe that, who are other pal- other p- friends from Palestine who say they would never work with an Israeli, you know? And so then I wonder, am I, am I wrong? Am I uh, a traitor or something? Like, am I doing something, you know? But then I'm like, oh wait, there's hundreds of women and men we work with who, who don't feel that way. Stories in the and so recognizing that, Pal- you know, not all Palestinians feel the same way about something. But so it is, but I just in terms of that, like it's very like the, the experience of, of knowing, because even the Palestinians that I know in Palestine as friends, let alone the Palestinians I know here, they're more international, right? Like they're, they speak English. Yeah. They're able to, travel they go places they do things they work usually they want to do creative stuff whatever like that is not your average palestinian you know but those are the majority of the ones i know and so it's been a very important experience for me to know these like real everyday women who just like have their families that's it like that's what they do like they have for thousands of years you know what get, i mean get, get out of our niche kind of thing right to be able to well just but it's also like i feel like i need to it is a very big like uh it's a big thing for me to be able to defer to their to follow their lead you know i think it's important that i'm following real palestinians leads rather than making this up as I go along yeah. based on my opinion. Do you know what I mean? Like that's very meaningful to me. Um, and I think that that's very central to why I'm able to speak about it the way I am. Um, and I guess the other thing about it is I think it's actually <laughs> like, you know, when I say meeting my husband, it also means, let's say that that's like connecting with Judaism. So it's, connecting with Israel, connecting with Judaism, that includes my grandmother's history and stuff like that. That is very important too, because if I didn't have that, I would be perceived as another fanatic Palestinian who's just, you know, saying extremist things, you know? But it's very hard for people to say that about me because I live in a Jewish household. I go to Israel, I speak Hebrew. Like, you can't say I hate Israel. <laughs> you can't say I'm. You are the epitome of a right? Like you, you, you are living right. both those lives and and still have a meaning. But there's connection such a. With I mean, you. and it's it's painful at times. Um, but there's so much power in not being able to like be accused of being on one side or the other. Yeah. And you know, 
when it you know when it comes down to it my focus is palestine because those are the people living under occupation so like it's not that i'm on both sides like if you want to talk about the conflict or whatever it's a military occupation of a people it's a human rights violation period like it's not about that i'm not debating that i'm talking about like okay it's 2020 millions of israelis live there millions of jews live there as well as arabs and what are we going to do like we have to do something yeah they're not all leaving they're not you know what i mean so it's more about that for me it's not about who's right it's not about it's about what finding a wrong. solution right it's about yeah it's coexisting. about like living together moving yeah. forward and yeah. like not hating each other but in fact like and there's been there's like shreds of hope places like haifa which is like, cause in, in Tel Aviv, essentially Jaffa is South Tel Aviv. Jaffa being the ancient city that was there. Tel Aviv is like the modern growth to the North of it. That is the Israeli city. Um, but so Jaffa has been there forever, but it got kind of absorbed into mm-hmm. te- modern day Tel Aviv. And, but Jaffa is still like where really the Palestinians live in Tel Aviv and um, Jerusalem same deal there's like the old city has quarters then there's east jerusalem west jerusalem it's segregated basically um but haifa is totally assimilated and it's known for this it's like there's not an arabic neighborhood there's just lots of arabs living there or i shouldn't say that there's not a palestinian neighborhood there is lots of Palestinians living there as well as Jews and Israelis and whatever. And you kind of, if you're driving through Haifa and you're looking at the people on the street, you're not going to necessarily be able to tell who's who, because sure. If a woman is Muslim, you can tell because she's wearing a covering, but in general, like your average, if you're Christian Palestinian or whatever, you would never, you barely, cause like, because as I said before, Israel is a very brown place. Yeah. A lot of the Jews there are from Arab places. So you can't tell if someone is Moroccan Jewish or Palestinian Christian from looking at them. It's hard. It's like, you know, and everyone's mixing and everyone's whatever. So that I, I believe is a hopeful example of like the way things can be. Like even like the municipal, like, I, one time I was in Haifa and I just happened to go to like the municipal little museum, like yeah. the Haifa city museum. And it was a show of Palestinian tiles that was like, um, you know, like how the poured tiles where it's like, and they use these metal frames to like yeah. pour the different colors in and whatever. But it's like for a Israeli city to have in their, their municipal thing, like, a completely Palestinian focus is like not your average thing. So much is about European stuff. So much is about like the Jewish history in Israel or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? It's just not going to be like a total focus on a Palestinian craft. Um, but in Haifa, you have that. That stuff happens more, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, I think that. Yeah, it's that, it's the, I mean, it's the same. It's like, I've I, I've had a lot of uh, the past couple of years, I don't wanna be, I don't wanna be treating people like a sociology experiment, but I have been seeking out 
essentially gay Palestinians who are born in Israel. Okay. But also that's like the prime, but also non-gay, like just Palestinians, um, women and men who are from Jaffa, from Haifa, from wherever. Because also there are many Arab villages in Israel, but they're just like totally segregated. Um, but uh, I'm just really interested in like how it is, like how they, how they exist. Like I'm interested in, in seeing or getting to know them and trying to understand their mentality. Like how do they get up every day and speak Hebrew and like go to Hebrew this, to university in Israel and whatever and still maintain like their Palestinian roots um, and, and culture identity and, and pride and whatever. And um, it, it's really interesting. And it's also, I mean, you know, unfortunately Palestinians who are from the West Bank or Gaza, like actually have a, have a, don't always get along with Palestinians from Israel because they feel, you know, some people feel that um, if you're born in Israel and you're Palestinian, that means that your ancestors will have like cooperated with Israel. And so you're like bad Palestinians because you were, you agreed to let them live there or whatever. You know what I mean? And yeah. you, you didn't, you didn't insist or leave or like uh, resist so that you were forced to leave or something you like. So, and and there are like Palestinian families in, in Nazareth and places like that, that are as big as big cities, but they're in Israel. Um, that like, there's like some Palestinian wealth and there's like success and business and whatever. And it's like a kind of tricky topic because some of it can be seen as being derived from Israel working with the occupiers, you know what I mean? Um, which I don't think is totally fair also because, you know, a lot of the ones who stayed in, in Israel um, feel that they are doing right because they didn't let go of their homes. They are keeping their, they still have their own they, narratives as well, right? They have, Right, like they believe that they're they're being resilient by refusing to leave. But then at the same time, then they're speaking Hebrew now and they're, you know, living among, you know. So it's like, it's a, it's a tricky thing. I wish it was simpler. I wish Palestinians were more unified. But of course, people love to like find reasons to separate groups. <laughs> out and into you know i think that's always um, going to be the case right that's human nature that's human nature yeah so it's so it's just complicated but as i said before i feel like i am i feel like i have a camaraderie with palestinians in israel like i feel like i understand where they're coming from more because as i said like they don't like it's the kind of thing where like it's very casual i feel like among arabs to refer to israel certain ways or just say like kind of to say like dismissive things about israel and about jews and about whatever and for obvious reasons but i feel like 
when when you're a Palestinian who spends time in Israel, whether you're born there or you travel there, it just gives you a different, you just have a different understanding of it where it just is less, it's just more complicated, you know? And I'm interested in those, I'm interested in that, that perspective because realistically at this point, two states is like not gonna happen. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people talk about some of the best like political minds in the world, whatever. Um, I've been talking for a long time about it's one state. It's like no more Jewish country. It's a, it can be a place where Jews are safe in the world, which is what at best is what people want Israel to be, right? Yeah. Um, and fine, it can be a place. So in theory, like I'm, you know, I think the dream now is like a place that is not called Israel. It's also probably not going to be called Palestine. Maybe it'll be called Canaan. Maybe it's called something else. I don't know. But it's just one place where people are free to go where they want. Because part of the whole thing is that Palestinians who were from wherever in Israel, like modern day Israel, who had to leave during the Nakba, who were evicted, um, they just want to go back to where they were. And some of them speak about it in more extreme terms, like they yeah. want to be given back their land. But I think a lot of them would settle for just the freedom to go rent an apartment there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they're not, and we're not talking about reparations. We're just talking about, like, you want to move basic, to Haifa, move to Haifa. Yeah, basic human rights. Like, being able to yeah, travel. like you can just move, you know? And in the same way, like, a lot of Israelis, uh, not a lot, but there's an Israeli movement, for example, uh, Hebron. Part of the reason it's such a hot spot for the occupation is that there's, the tomb of Rachel is there. And there's like, it's a religious Jewish place of interest. And I think a lot of Israelis, I mean, Israelis do go there like as tour groups to go visit this like holy site. But um, I think that there would be some Jews who would want to live there, which would also be allowed. You know, I'm not saying it's one way, like just the Palestinians can leave, but then that's still Palestine. It's like, no, I'm saying like from the river to the sea, one place, everyone's welcome no one is under occupation that's like and i and 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 i and i honestly feel that i am like i mentioned before palestinians who were born in israel foreigners um but also for me being a foreigner who travels often back and forth there I feel like we're uniquely suited to be able to imagine this a little better because we live like that. I yeah. go to Ramallah and the next day I go to my husband's from a place called Ranana, which is like very conservative, white, small, it's a city, but it's not, it's like a town. Um, but I go from Ramallah to Ranana, which like basically, I don't know if anyone else in the world does that. Do you know what I mean? Like from, Palestinian city to a conservative white Jewish area like that's crazy but I live like that already so I can I feel like I can imagine it being everywhere you know and it's the same for you know I have a few friends who um like I have this kid who's 20 maybe he's like 22 now but he's a Palestinian kid who's from Jerusalem and he's a law student and he just drives like a taxi not a taxi, but like a, you can hire him to drive you, yeah. like a driver. Um, his dad actually 
owns like a taxi company kind of thing. And he just does some driving for some money, the kid. And he's become a really good friend of mine. Um, and he drives me back and forth when I'm there because he's able to drive anywhere. He can drive in Palestine, drive in Israel because he's born in Jerusalem. Um, and it's people like that. It's like sometimes I'll get in his car and he'll have on Hebrew music and the radio station, which from an outsider's perspective, you would assume he's Palestinian. He's proud to be Palestinian. Yeah. Any moment when he can be Palestinian, he's going to be Palestinian. But he's alone in his car listening to Hebrew music. And like, you know, I'll joke with him and be like, where's the Arab music? Come on, you know? <laughs> but like, the point is like, there are people living like this already who are already going back and forth, who speak Hebrew, they speak Arabic, they go here, they go there. And like, it's possible, you know? It's not, I don't know. Anyway, that's my, that's my story. Jordan, thank you so much. This has been great. It's been so Thank interesting you. kind of getting all of this perspective because I there's so much I don't know and so much that you've told me and so much that I need to learn from now on. Thank you so much for listening. If you guys have any comments or feedback, please do share them with me. You can find me on Instagram at Ahmad Mia or at The Ahmad Show. Um, you can find Jordan at Jordan Nasser. Until next time, take care.